Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Fred Bonson, man, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to kind of motivate why I have you here briefly. I would describe you as a, a creative writer, an author, an essayist. Are you? Do you also do poetry? I don't know. Are you a poet? I've dabbled a little bit in poetry, but you know, unlicensed dabbling. Uh, <laughs> so I would not call myself a poet. No. Okay. <laughs> writer, uh, essayist is great. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, I don't often have people who are sort of more purely in the creative fields on the show, but I, I just want to briefly motivate why I think it does make sense. You know, the, the log line of this show is you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I think usually I interpret the modern world as some kind of scientist or Christianity part of it, a theologian, or, you know, someone doing something sort of academic. That is where I tend to feel comfortable. 
But I would argue that the arts is, you know, sort of Christianity related or adjacent or focused arts are a perfectly good example of something that the modern world has to offer. Sort of someone wielding the artistic imagination in the current moment with great skill. And I would put you in that category. And so that's how I'm thinking about it. And I'm so glad to have you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that, Dan. Um, Great to be with you and greetings to all you listeners out there. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah. So, so our conversation, the, the questions I have anyway for you are based on a beautiful piece of yours called Keeping the World in Being. And there will, of course, be a link to that piece in the show notes. So if people want to read that first, uh, they can. But of course, they don't have to to be able to understand what we're going to talk about. I want to start with something decidedly more academic and didactic and less uh, cre- <laughs> less creative, which is to have you give us a little bit of background information on this group of people that you reference in the piece, the early Christian monks and nuns, uh, often known as the Desert Fathers and Mothers. But I think there are a, f- a few others that you uh, reference in your piece that are not just strictly speaking the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers. But tell us about this early group of, yeah, the, the, the first monastics, basically. Yeah, well, just as I'm a, an unlicensed poet, I'm an unlicensed historian of mm-hmm. Christianity, really just dabbling here and there and, and, you know, following my interests. But as I read that history, those early Christian monks and nuns were people who in the third and fourth century CE left whatever major population center they were living in, a lot of them Alexandria and Egypt, and they headed out into the desert. They were Christians who were dissatisfied with what was currently on offer as Christianity, which was, you know, Christianity suddenly became the official religion of the Roman Empire in 312 AD when Constantine just sort of said, Okay, everybody's Christian now, you know, and overnight everybody was nominally Christian. And, you know, I think a lot of people looked around and said, that's not Christianity. And the people who really wanted to follow Christ, follow Christ's teachings, devote their lives to prayer, they headed out into the desert and they created these little communities of hermits. You know, a lot of them lived as solitaries, but they lived in community. And they they really focused on the inner life, the disciplines of watchfulness, watching your thoughts and guarding against impure thoughts, guarding against anger and avarice and greed and lust and, and you know, the, what we call the seven deadly sins and so on. Uh, and directing their attention toward God, directing their attention toward awareness of God's presence and then, you know, all kinds of fruits came out of that patience and a reluctance to judge others. You know, that was a real something that comes up a lot in the desert literature. You know, who are you to judge kind of thing? An emphasis on hospitality, even though they kept these lives of ascetic rigor and uh, fasting and, you know, all night vigils and those kinds of things. When they had visitors, you know, they would break out, you know, the fresh bread instead of the three day old crusty loaf, you know, <laughs> they would, they would cook up some vegetables from their garden and, 
and have a feast, you know, in, in, in what constituted a feast in that era. So hospitality was big, uh, welcoming the stranger. Anyway, that, that sort of life of directing one's life toward God, I think, was a lot of what they were seeking. And they couldn't find it in what constituted Christendom back in that day. I think that I first learned of the Desert Fathers and Mothers through the writings of Thomas Merton. And yeah. I think the the only book I've ever owned is a, a little book that I think that he basically edited it or something or published it. And I got it back in college. And yet, uh, for listeners, you're now walking back to the bookshelf behind you and, and finding probably this very same book. Yep. Wisdom of the Desert. That's the one. Yep. So that's that's how I was introduced to them through having first read Thomas Merton's uh, Seven Story Mountain, his autobiography of becoming Catholic and becoming a monk that he wrote in his 20s and then later disowned, but that people uh, nevertheless have found very impactful, and, and so did I in college. Did you find them through through Thomas Merton as well? I did, yeah. And Merton has been kind of a gateway drug for a lot of us, you know, leading back yeah. to the tradition, uh, the contemplative tradition in Christianity, which has been really obscured. That whole tradition of of mystical prayer, contemplative prayer has been obscured. And and I think it's it's the best thing going in Christianity. Honestly, I think it, it is the story that you know Christianity has to share with the world of that that connection to God. And yeah, so Merton was my doorway, my gateway into that world. I've read probably 20 or 30 of his books. And and I think I really resonate too with his his sort. We can talk about Merton all day, but just his irreverence and his his deep humanness, you know. I mean, he was a wild partying bohemian in Columbia, you know, in his student days. And I wrote a long piece about Merton in which I I followed him on a two-week trip that he did, uh, his trip in the months before he did his big famous Asian tour in which he ended up dying. He did a trip out West to Christ in the Desert Monastery and Redwoods Abbey in California. This was in May of 1968. And he took a two-week road trip and kept a detailed journal of that trip. It's published as, as a book called Woodshore Desert. And it occurred to me at a certain point that the 50th anniversary of that trip was coming up and I set out to follow him and, and took a good buddy of mine, Jeremy Seifert, who made a film about that. And I wrote a long piece, but it was really a pilgrimage following in Merton's footsteps and reading his stuff and meeting with some of the nuns that he knew and trying to understand what drove him and trying to understand his significance as a, as a Christian writer for our time. So yeah, I could talk about Merton all day, but he's been hugely influential for me. Well, it makes sense to me that, that he would, by the way, for people who don't know, Thomas Merton was a, a monk. He lived mostly in Kentucky at an, an abbey there, wrote mostly in mid, middle 20th century and was kind of a public figure through his writings, though he rarely left his monastery. And that monastery was a vow of silence type monastery, which there are different types. But that was one of one of those where basically the, the guys don't talk to each other. I think they have an hour every week or something. You know, there there's a little release valve. And he channeled his incredible way with words 
into being an incredibly prolific writer and in the latter half of his life became a, a kind of a, you know, he would correspond with world leaders and was well known for his writings and sort of a this weird sort of cosmopolitan hermit, uh, which the, the combo is so is so rare. And I I think that that makes sense for him to be the one. Obviously, we're Americans. Right. And he was American. But that influence extends beyond America in terms of introducing people to this sort of lost history, especially for Protestants. Right. Catholics might have more of a of a knowledge, if dim about, you know, because there's still monks and nuns and, and priests are kind of in some sense, the modern monks, you know, they don't marry. But as Protestants, we are completely cut off from that history unless we have someone like Merton. What I was going to say about him, though, is because of that sort of interaction with the world and he he read voraciously and he understood current events and he wrote about the Vietnam War before he died. And so he's he's a great avatar or a great kind of connection back to that world because he lived, even though he lived solitarily in a, you know, in a monastery, he did sort of live in the modern world. He was connected to it, conversant with people who had power in that world. Does that make sense, Fred, what I'm trying to get at? Yeah, absolutely. No, he was in the world, connected to the world, but yet very much apart from it. And and the way in which he navigated that paradox, I think is what makes him so interesting to read and, and such an important figure for our time. Because on the one hand, we're all deeply enmeshed in the world of screens and Zoom and social media and you know living in a, a faltering late capitalist empire that is America that's just gone completely batshit crazy. And Merton was living in a world that had gone completely batshit crazy. I mean, he lived through Vietnam and or the beginnings of Vietnam and, you know, the level of racism, just overt racism then. Well, not to mention World War II. And World War II and, right. and you know, and on and on and on. So the way in which he, I mean, you know, I think the modern consciousness would say, oh, well, he's just, you know, an escapist. Monks are escapists. You know, they're navel gazers and. And all the old cliches that are have been applied to monastics since the you know since the beginning, but in some sense he really understood in a deep way the kind of brokenness of society of his day, but also the potential for redemption and healing. And and there's a way in which monks like him and and the monks uh, and nuns that I'm drawn to are kind of holding within themselves that tension of being in the modern world and all of its flaws, but being still a, a child of God, a person created in God's image and having all of the, the gifts and possibilities that that brings. And, and I think their great gift, the monastics great gift is really keeping alive that Imago Dei for all of us. You know, a, a monastic is a kind of archetypal human being in a way, or they're, they're trying to represent that. And it's harder for those of us, you know, married with families or, or single and out in the world, whatever, to see that on a day to day basis sometimes. Just a brief note on the, oh, monks and nuns, you know, they're not engaged with the world. And, and Christ says that we should be engaged with the world. I mean, people say whatever they got to say to yeah. make themselves feel better, because the fact is that anybody who says that could never can hack it as a monastic. Yeah. 
And that is the, that's the quickest and most God baptized way to get yourself out of the cognitive dissonance of realizing that you're a decadent piece of shit compared to them. (laughs) Speaking to myself here, you know, uh, (laughs) I couldn't do it. You know, I love to visit monasteries occasionally. It's actually one of the things I regret most about leaving California is that I don't have access to new Kamaldoli and big Sur anymore. Yeah. If I did, I would probably be there twice a year if they'd have me. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to say that from my psychological lens. We, yeah. we say whatever oh. we got to say to get ourselves off the hook so that we don't have to consider our our deep failures. <laughs> yeah. No, I so resonate with that. I'm And I'm right there with you. Like, And my wife like tells me, she's like, you can never be a monk. Like, you know, you're romanticizing this stuff, but you couldn't be a monk. Like, come on, let's face it. <laughs> yeah. I think like in typical, you know, upwardly mobile, white liberal Protestant fashion, I would love a life where I got to be a monk like one month a year. You know, mm. that's, I think, I think I could hack that. It would be good for me. And then, you know, yeah. just that month, then the other 11 months, I would I would uh, try and heal the trauma I inflicted on my son for randomly being gone for a month every year. Anyway, right. so yeah. I just had to, I had to get my little pot shots in. It, at myself, too. You know, I, I've made that excuse disguised as a proclamation of Christian doctrine in the past. Yeah. You know, we're we're getting into the context in which these people lived, this decadent Christendom, and you're you're starting and you're talking about the 60s when Merton was writing it. And, and now I want to bring it to, to now and quote your piece. So you wrote, you write, hatred and violence have metastasized against people of color, against climate change, against basic human dignity. The daily assaults often initiated by an autocratic ruler holding the highest office in the land. How to prevent that toxic brew from taking up residence in our inner landscape? End quote. And I, I wanted to even add <laughs> a wrinkle that until 2020, until Biden replaced Trump as president, that was going on with, yeah, a would-be autocrat at the top. But also there's an additional problem, uh, one more layer that wasn't in your piece for specifically those raised evangelical, which is most of this audience and is myself, our former community baptizing the rantings of that autocratic ruler, the verbal violence against those communities, against climate change, baptizing that as in fact the Christian thing to do. Mm. Just <laughs> the, the hits keep coming. And I loved just I just loved that couple of sentences. How to prevent that from taking up residence inside of us? Where do we have walls? You know, where where how can we keep our autonomy as people who want to be faithful and not innerly corrupted, you know? So I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, you know, I wrote, so this piece that you read and have referenced keeping the world in being uh, is more contemplative, reflective as a writer. I'm trying to write into the person I want to be a lot of times Mm -hmm. rather than the person I am. So I hope if readers read this piece, they don't think, oh, wow, this guy's really got it together. It's more of like, this is, you know, I'm I'm a broken mess and this is what I'm trying to live into and live toward. But I wrote another piece before that. It was published last year in Harper's Magazine called The Gate of Heaven is Everywhere. And I really 
I came out swinging against American Christianity in, in all of its institutionalized forms, but particularly evangelical Christianity. And it was really kind of a almost a Pauline diatribe, you know, the first thousand words of the piece. And then I went into a more constructive kind of repertorial look at contemplative Christianity and how it's arising as a response to the failures of the established church. But in the opening of that piece, you know, I talk about how evangelicals really just kind of, as you say, baptized this guy as their Messiah. And I called him the crotch grabbing Caligula of Mar-a-Lago. That's a little <laughs> trademark back. So I just, <laughs> the crotch grabbing Caligula of Mar-a-Lago. I mean, he's a clown, right? And how do you, and, and yet people have just fallen for this guy as their, as their savior and still, or, or people who are emulating him. And so I think in a way it's, it's a gift that the evangelical church has given us because we've seen who they really are. We've seen, okay, this is, this is the empty shell, empty, you know, morally empty shell of what once was called, you know, Christianity, but it's a joke. It's a, it's a complete farce. If that's who you're holding up as your leader, right. As your hope for Messiah. And I grew up evangelical and the son of missionaries who were missionaries with a, a Calvinist, you know, conservative Calvinist church. Uh, what's it called? I'm even blanking out on the name now. I think I'm so traumatized by it. <laughs> uh, Another CRC, one of those. Oh, CRC. Christian yeah. Reformed Church of America, yeah. right? Hardline Calvinists. And the more I've kind of deconstructed that experience and deconstructed that evangelical upbringing, I realize there's a lot of what we see with, or what we've, what we've seen with the Trump years and evangelicals supporting him. It's, it's a, it's a heresy, right? It's a, it's a complete misreading of the Christian story. It's like, they've lost the plot, you know? And so you can to me, to even like engage with it and argue with it and get angry about it, I just realized at a certain point, it was just, it was harming me. It was traumatizing me. It was leading me nowhere other than into the downward spiral of anger, you know? And I think that's why I was so drawn to the Christian monastic tradition, the contemplative tradition. It's a way of saying, I too am implicated somehow, even if it's just through my vitriolic reaction against those idiots, you know? It, it helps to be able to name that at least and say, yeah, I'm, I'm implicated, but it also gives you a way out. It gives you a way out through prayer and through remembering your connection to Christ through the Jesus prayer and getting it in your body. But yeah, I just feel like American Christianity's lost the plot. And this is why I'm not Protestant anymore. I, I don't even know what it means. What, what are we still protesting 500 years later? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this is something I wrote about in the Harper's piece when the 500 year anniversary of the reformation rolled around, like, do you remember anything happening? Like maybe there was a commemorative Bible that came out, you know, a few theologians were wheeled out to sort of say something about the reformation, you know, harumph, harumph, but like, what the hell are we still protesting? What, what are we, and what do we have to offer as an alternative, like justification by faith? I don't even think that's a thing. I don't believe in justification by faith anymore. I don't think that's what salvation is about. Right. But I think there's, there's just so many layers that once I began to unpack them, I just didn't find there was much 
propping up the edifice anymore of American Protestant Christianity. There's, it's, it's, a, it's a house of cards, and we watched it begin to topple uh, with the Trump years. You know, I've been thinking that these angles of yours around contemplative practice are kind of combining with the way that I have tended to think and, and talk about it on this show even. So I, I tend to focus on it as contemplative practice, but in case anybody is new to this topic, like a new listener, by which we mean things like centering prayer, you know, silent meditation, uh, Lexio Divina, which is a certain way of reading scripture devotionally, the various Ignatian spiritual exercises, which you can learn or do with Jesuits, this kind of quiet, more silent form of, of Christian prayer. And that has a, a very long history, right? Going back to the beginning and especially going back to the, to the desert fathers and mothers. So I have... I have talked about it often as it's a means of direct experience of the divine. And in my own story, it has served as a kind of an anchor, bringing me back to some sort of Christian imagination of the world when other things seem to argue against that and seem more plausible. And I don't need to belabor that because I've talked about that elsewhere. I mean, you, you're welcome to, of course, respond to that. But the other two things that are kind of locking into place as we talk are contemplative practice as direct experience of the divine. But then the two things that I think your piece is more about are contemplative practice as resistance to corrupt Christendom and as character formation that specifically is resisting technological ubiquity and constant attention grabbing of our devices and our connectivity in the modern world. And I, I think there's something cool about combining it's a, it's a contemplative Trinity, if you will, combining the resistance to the corrupt Christianity or Christendom and the technological ubiquity with also then this, I don't know, for me, maybe the primary uh, function of contemplative practice is just to perhaps glimpse God uh, in a direct way. You mentioned in your body, you know, and that's what contemplative practice does because, because you quiet your mind, you end up feeling whatever you experience in your whole body. And I don't know how that works. And I don't have a very good analogy or sort of image for that. If, if a, <laughs> a moat opens or something, I mean, I don't know what it is, but, but you, I see you're smiling. You know what I'm talking about? I'll stop talking and give you a chance now to respond to that. Well, I, I love how you've identified those three strands in what I was doing. And I wasn't even aware of that, but I think you're right. I think that is a way to, to name kind of what I was after. I would say the, the resistance to tech, I think is more the fruit rather than the, the goal or the, the reason for beginning a contemplative practice. I think that emerges as a byproduct. I think you can use just secular mindfulness practices as a means to redirect your attention and train your attention. And there's a ton of literature, a lot of great literature on mindfulness as a way to train your attention. And I think Christians have a lot to learn from that. And I've, I've kind of dabbled in the secular mindfulness world. I, as almost kind of a research project, I haven't written about this yet, but I did a nine month training course at the search inside yourself leadership Institute. Uh, it's called silly. They sort of jokingly refer to themselves 
but they came out of Google in 2007 as a way to teach Google engineers how to relate to each other. You know, they were all kind of siloed and, you know, introverted and so on. And this was a way to kind of teach them emotional intelligence skills and mindfulness skills using the best neuroscience research. And there's a lot of great neuroscience research, like Richard Davidson has a book called Altered Traits, which I'd highly recommend. Uh, it kind of gathers the best research from the last 20 years, showing how a mindfulness practice can actually change your brain. You know, it's called neuroplasticity, where you can rewire your neurons in a certain extent and, and train yourself to have more focused attention uh, and also to have more meta-awareness that sort of sense of looking down on yourself from the ceiling and what am I doing in this moment? So those are, you know, great practices and techniques. And a lot of them are being used, you know, in the business world. And well, I use them almost every therapy session with my clients. Yeah, there you go. Yep. There you go. So there's a lot to be gained there in terms of resisting the ubiquity of technology in our lives and reclaiming our attention but, you know, the, for the early monks, that wasn't the goal. Um, obviously, they didn't have, to, you know, a Palm Pilot or, a, <laughs> or an iPad. Listen to me, Palm Pilot, it's so ancient. I was going to say, uh, no one except Gen Xers have ever had a Palm Pilot. <laughs> or uh, boomers, maybe. Yeah. Mind. I never actually owned a Palm Pilot. Anyway, they didn't have the iPhone 13 in their hands. But their, you know, the early monks' focus was directing their attention toward God. We know that the human mind is prone to distraction. And John Cashin... Boy, do we know that. John Cashin, uh, who I write about in the piece, he was one of the early chroniclers of the Christian monastic movement. I call him an immersion journalist of the soul. And he was going about sort of gathering stories, gathering wisdom from that early movement. And he said, the mind is always on the move. You know, he talked about just a lot of his book, the conferences is about how to deal with distraction. So distraction is nothing, you know, particularly new in the modern world. It's just, we've ramped it up with technology to, to where we don't even know we're distracted. So I think redirecting your attention is a lot of what contemplative prayer and contemplative practice gives us. But I think that's not the goal. The goal is the other piece of what you named, which is connection to the divine a feeling of union, a feeling of being connected to your creator and a reminder that you are enough and you're loved just as you are. You don't have to be or do anything. You don't have to accomplish. You don't have to go anywhere. You can just be here right now in this moment, tending to your breath, re re repeating the name of Jesus or repeating Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy was the early prayer that they prayed that gets you into a different frame of mind neurologically, you know, it engages your parasympathetic nervous system, but the goal is bringing your awareness into God's presence. And of course, God is always there. So it's not sort of summoning God. It's bringing your awareness, your attention to that fact of God's ever present love and presence. So that I think is the goal. And that's the, the reason why I try to sit on my cushion every morning, you know, for 20 minutes. But I think the byproduct is hopefully less attention to distraction and more attention to what really matters. And then you mentioned the third thing, resistance. 
And I think, you know, that is a byproduct as well, because withdrawal is a pretty potent form of resistance in whatever, whether it's religious or not, you know, just refusing to give your assent or presence or agency to the powers that be is it's a pretty powerful form of resistance, just saying no, stepping out. But in terms of contemplative prayer as resistance, by inculcating a sense of God's presence and I am enough, that right there is a challenge to capitalism and you know the need for always buying happiness and buying more. And I think too, it's you know, in terms of political resistance, it trains us to be watchful. Watchfulness was a big thing for the early monks and and trains us in the arts of discernment, discernment of the spirits and, you know, what is really of God and what is of the prince of this world. Uh, I think that's another fruit that emerges from contemplative practice. Not that Donald Trump is Satan, but... When you say the prince of this world, that just seems like my water out. <laughs> seems like such a good title for him. You know, I don't mean it. I don't mean it in the direct one to one comparison, but like right. he's not a king. He's like a little whiny prince. Yeah. And yet he is one of the most powerful people in the world. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's farce. One of, one of my favorite, I don't know, cultural facts about the Trump presidency is that that brilliant satirical comedy veep on hbo basically had to end because they were just like it whatever we're doing as this satire of presidential and other kinds of politics like it all doesn't seem funny anymore because like just as weird shit is happening in the actual white house and like that is the level and if people have seen veep that will hit them if they haven't, it might not land. But like, it's such a silly show. It's so over the top. And they basically had to to end it early or pivot the the, the stories. And yeah, just, just because of like what the actual world had become. And so I do like, there is something about disengaging from that. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of sort of voting, <laughs> sort of voting. I'm a big fan of voting to like, not have Donald Trump be president again, for instance. I think uh, I would like everybody to do that. But there is a kind of disengagement that, yeah, you know, we think of political engagement. I feel like I'm veering too far here. You can bring me back, Fred. Voting is an act of political engagement, but it doesn't require all that much time. You know, like how much do you really need to know to know that you don't want to vote for Donald Trump as president? Like 40 minutes of reading? you know, every four years, like it's not a lot of time. And I think that actually the, the technological, the ubiquity of our Twitter feed or whatever else has actually combined with this other stuff to make us feel like we have to be constantly plugged in, in order to resist evil, in order to like bring about the kingdom of heaven. But you could argue, no, you're better off like exempting yourself from most of that conversation, which is just going to lead to one vote in a couple years anyway, that you actually have a say and like love your next door neighbor. You know, I mean, I, that's where I lean. I imagine that would be where you lean. And I, someone could make the case for constant engagement in the news cycle as some sort of civic virtue, but I'm quite skeptical of that. 
especially because the bar, it's not just like read your paper in the morning anymore, which was probably more than you needed to do then. It's like constant. You can read Twitter all day long. Okay, I will. I'm going to give you a chance to step in here. Well, what's coming to mind as you're talking is, and yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, voting is kind of the bare minimum of, you know, it's the low hanging fruit to at least keep people like Caligula out of office. But what's coming to mind is people like him and, you know, people in the evangelical world like Jerry Falwell Jr. and Ravi Zacharias and any number of people who have fallen from their role at the top. I think of this Merton quote, it gets at a lot of things, but let me just read it and then I can comment on it. So this is from the book you mentioned, The Wisdom of the Desert. This is Merton's introduction to it's kind of him introducing the desert literature and the Christian monastic tradition. And he says, what can we gain by sailing to the moon if we are not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? What can we gain by sailing to the moon if we are not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all voyages of discovery. And without it, all the rest are not only useless, but disastrous. Proof, the great travelers and colonizers of the Renaissance were, for the most part, men who perhaps were capable of the things they did precisely because they were alienated from themselves. And so I think of that, it's 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 not just an isolated something we're living through, you know, in the past four years, but this is this is part of, you know, one of the tragedies of the human story is people who are most alienated from themselves, when given a little bit of power, can do horrific things, you know, and, and so if only it comes back to the inner life, I think, and, and the huge importance to try to bridge that gulf of alienation between ourselves and God and between ourselves and the other, because that's what we really want. We want that union. We want that gulf to be bridged. It's just that for people who don't understand that they go off and do a bunch of bad shit, whether it's colonizing the Americas or printing a bunch of red MAGA hats and becoming the leader of the known world, you know, but I think of it in terms of that alienation, that gulf, that separates them from God as the, as the root cause. Yeah. It makes me think of client work too. One of the things that I've worked with, with multiple clients is emotional recognition, which is one facet of, of sort of connection to oneself. It's not the only skill there is, but uh, a lot of people, often men, but certainly not only men don't know. And I actually, I would include myself in this. I, I have, had to learn and still need to learn a lot about recognizing my own emotions. Like when people ask how I'm doing, like it takes me a minute, you know, I don't like have an answer ready and I don't often think about how I'm feeling. I'm not paying very much attention to how I'm feeling uh, until it's something really negative that I want to escape from. Right. Or if it's something very positive, then I feel, you know, rapturously happy or whatever. But what that kind of emotional granularity can do and and mindfulness awareness of one's emotion is it does what you're talking about it's one of the ways of doing what you're talking about of like being grounded in yourself meaning knowing yourself <laughs> socrates said know thyself and the unexamined life is not worth living and one of the facets we can examine is our emotional life and you got to wonder with a guy like trump like 
what emotions is he running from? You know, how, how well could he possibly know himself to behave the way that he behaves? You know, I think about people who are serial cheaters, right? Serial cheaters are not just horny. If they were just horny, they would probably not get married. <laughs> you know, like they would just be like, ah, you know what? I'm just a really horny guy and I should not be married because I got to have a lot of sex with a lot of different kinds of people. That is not what comes out when you really get to know that person. It's that they're running from X, Y, or Z. They're replaying story A through in this way that came from their family, you know, whatever the things are, right? There's all kinds of different versions of that, but it is about alienation from oneself. That's a good, that's a pretty good term for it to kind of bring it to some psychological, to, to apply that to a therapeutic kind of psychological lens. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. You mentioned emotional granularity. I think that's a great phrase. And I, I think, I don't know if it's, is it Dr. Susan David who talks about that, about once you start to name your specific emotions, you can begin to see what's beneath them. If you name it, it's maybe there's fear beneath that anger that's causing the anger, those kinds of things. Yeah. yeah I, the way I like to, I don't, I'm not familiar with her work um, so that you could be right. I say, I like to say another thing I heard somewhere else, which is that, you know, emotions are sources of information. So in a therapeutic context, for instance, if we can figure out what the actual emotion is, oh, it's not just anger. It's like, I feel, I don't just feel angry or sad. I feel abandoned. Okay. Interesting. Abandoned by who or what? And then it's like, oh, I feel abandoned by myself actually. Oh, okay. Why? You know? So it's like, you know, some of therapy is like collaborative detective work, just going, ah, I'm just frustrated. Well, okay, usually there's something under frustration. And I use these emotion wheels that a lot of people who have been in therapy have probably seen them. And they, they sort of break into like further and further granularity of emotion and from like anger to whatever, to more specific and then even more specific. And like that tells us, okay, it gives us a clue to follow in the detective work. And that detective work is really about knowing yourself ultimately. It's knowing what you're feeling, how it connects to your story, how it might connect to distorted thought patterns that you have and you tell yourself that then cause you to feel anxious, depressed, et cetera, right? And so I'm operationalizing it in a kind of non-sexy, non-creative writing sense because that's the way that my brain works. But I think it's just to say we're talking about something similar. It's resonating with me at this more practical operational level, but I'm, I'm just agreeing with you and just phrasing it a different way. Right. That's cool. Yeah. And you know, one thing I think the, the early desert fathers and mothers were onto, uh, is the sense that we are not our thoughts. We are not our emotions They're As you said, emotions are information. I'm having my thoughts. I'm feeling my emotions, but I am me. I'm not them. Right. Yeah. And they, you know, they talk about, so like Evagrius of Ponticus, one of the early desert writers talked about logismoi and logismoi were, were thoughts, individual thoughts. So a lot of the desert writings are about how to recognize them. <laughs> Evagrius is, is pretty funny. You sort of pick up, you know, reading between the lines, you can tell what logismoi really bother him, you know, or <laughs> he's really plagued by 
uh, and one of them is like, if you have thoughts of being, you know, master of a spiritual city, <laughs> he's subtweeting. How you, how, how you fight that? You he's know? basically subtweeting his uh, his disciple. Yeah. <laughs> so delusion. We're not having delusions of grandeur, are we? Right. Um, but you can tell. You know, a lot of them were like, you know, the demons of lust and replaying scenes of men and women frolicking together. You know, this this comes up in the desert writings. So, like, how do you recognize things that are appearing on your mental screen? as logismoi, as thoughts, you know, you name them and you let them pass by. And this is, again, this is, you know, one of the big things in the secular mindfulness world too, is you don't get attached to your thoughts. You don't follow the rabbit hole down. If you're in contemplative prayer or, or meditation, you're not, it's, it's not that you're not trying to have thoughts. That's impossible. It's that you're watching the clouds float by it's just the weather system. And one of the beautiful analogies I've heard is father Martin Laird has written a number of books on Christian contemplation. He has a great book called into the silent land. So for any listeners who are wanting to kind of wanting to get introduction to Christian contemplation, I'd start with his book into the silent land by Martin Laird, L A I R D. Anyway, Martin Laird talks about how in the time of prayer, we are like Mount Zion, dwelling place of the living God. We're grounded, we're rooted, we're contained within God's presence, we're grounded in that presence. And our thoughts, our emotions that come up, however painful or joyous, they're just the clouds around Mount Zion. You know, it's just the weather system around the mountain. It's not the mountain itself. And I think that's that's been a an analogy I come back to, a metaphor I come back to, because it it just feels so resonant to the experience I've had in contemplative prayer. Of a lot of stuff comes up if you're really doing it day after day, you know, whether it's painful memories or you know the best idea for a book I've ever had. The practice is you don't engage it, you note it, you watch it pass by your mental screen, but you don't follow the cloud. You don't follow the thought. So that practice I think is really, yeah, that is the practice in a lot of ways. And then redirecting your attention back to your prayer word, back to, back to God. One last thought on that. I think one of the fruits of the practice, this is true, whether it's a mindfulness practice or a Christian contemplative prayer is it just widens the space a little bit between yourself and your thoughts or emotions so that you don't overly identify with any one thought or emotion and you can just get a little distance and it helps us become less reactive, less kind of, yeah, less reactive. We can just put a little bit of distance between ourselves and our experience. Which leads great into another quote from your piece. I wanted to read and give you a chance to respond to quote, political life has replaced the inner life as the arbiter of all things, instead of cultivating discernment, watchfulness, singleness of heart, those inner disciplines that are the foundation of a healthy person and a healthy polis, political community, many of us cast our hopes on platforms. As Cassian and the early monks knew, platforms, however noble or justified, cannot begin to satisfy the vastness of our yearning. They are a complement, not a replacement for the work of the spirit, end quote. 
this reminds me of a critique from the right that progressive or liberal Christianity, specifically Protestantism, is sometimes in danger of collapsing entirely into politics. That we say, well, Jesus really wanted to bring the kingdom of God to earth, and then we sort of stop there, and we don't ever talk about the personal, we don't ever talk about cultivating the inner life. And, you know, I don't think that, it it doesn't sound to me like you disagree with the general aims of that more progressive platform in terms of, you know, bringing equality of opportunity and and having more justice rain down and and injustice washed away. But to exclusively pursue that, to say, well, my new faith is just that I'm on Twitter all day. I'm picking on Twitter a lot today. I'm on Twitter all day sort of retweeting people whose politics I agree with. And that's my spiritual practice. Like that's not going to fill it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, whatever critique you're alluding to there of the right, basically saying that the left has just become a platform, I think, you know, to a certain extent, that's true. And the, the, and, and is why my own dissatisfaction with American liberal Protestant Christianity, and I politically am very progressive, you know, like borderline anarchists, like... <laughs> I, you know, I want to see a world of equality and equity and dismantling unjust systems yeah, and dismantling, you know, white supremacy. And, you know, I'm all for abolishing the police. You're pretty, okay. You're pretty far left politically. Yeah. Yeah. But theologically, I don't think like the churches I've seen that are for those things. I just don't, I haven't experienced a lot of substance you know, in terms of contemplative life coming out of those churches, I think because so much of it does become this very outward action oriented platform. And, and it, I think the danger there is just losing sight of, of we are enough as we are created in the image of God. I don't want to sound like I'm bashing the aims of, of those churches who are for justice and so on. I think we need that. I just don't see, I think like, I don't think enough of that Christian justice work comes out of a deep place of prayer. I'll put it that way. I think it comes out of a certain set of political goals, which are admirable in and of themselves, but I don't see it grounded in a, in a rigorous inner life. Yeah. And of of course we don't, we don't know who has a rigorous inner life, right? Like we don't have access to that. Right. But you could look at what a church offers uh, in terms of if you'd like to become engaged, here are the ways you can become engaged. And if you see 30 churches that all have protest meetups, but three of them have discipleship, you know, ministries where you go through spiritual practices together, that gives you some sense of a ratio. You know, you can't know, you know, with particularity each person's inner journey, but you can pick up on a pattern, right? Or something like that. I'm talking about the fruits. You can see the fruits of, of a rigorous prayer life in the way the person lives and the way they act and carry themselves in the world. And, you know, the level of anger and distaste I've expressed already 
shows that I don't have much of a, of a prayer life yet. <laughs> so, yeah. so who am I to judge? I'm all I'm saying, I guess, is in my own experience, I was part of a group called Christian peacemaker teams back in 2001. And they did a lot of amazing stuff in Hebron and Colombia, and they would go into war zones around the world and serve as a, a Christian peace witness, right? Looking back on that experience, from everything from the month-long training I went through in Chicago to the three months I spent in Chiapas, Mexico, working as a human rights observer there with CPT, I never felt like our work was coming out of a deep place of prayer and then responding. It was coming out of anger. Hmm. You know, it was coming out of just being pissed off at the injustices that we saw. And I think it's pretty easy to be pissed off if you're an attentive person. There's a lot you can be pissed off at, but that doesn't really fix anything, you know? And so I think that that was one piece of my experience that's, I guess, caused me to be a little more circumspect about the anger of the Christian left and how effective it actually is. I think there's a place for righteous anger. I guess I, I, so I'm, I'm treading a very fine line here, but. Well, it makes me think of the black church protest movements, which, you know, even though I did a, an episode with a researcher at Pew who had studied the black church in depth in terms of a demographic level study, you know, I don't know a lot about what goes on in the black church. I am aware of my ignorance, but compared to liberal white churches, I yeah. think it's safe to say those movements are grounded in a lot more individual spiritual practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? And I'm glad you distinguish that because yeah, I was talking about liberal white churches, right? but I think you're absolutely right. You know, the black church as a whole is much more focused on the work of the spirit, the efficacy of prayer and the activism flows out of that. So I think that's a great example. And I think, you know, the civil rights movement came out of, a lot of deep prayer that happened before the actions. Um, so I think white Christians need to look to that as a model. Yeah. I want to turn for our last kind of third or less quarter of our conversation to ecological issues. Um, this is something that I know you've written about and uh, you live in Montana, which is a very sort of nature, you know, it's nature soaked. It's, it's grand, you're paying more attention to nature there. And I think that that also is your personality. And this is a dark fucking moment to be paying attention to nature and to be connecting that to any kind of values work, be that religious or non-religious values. And so I just wanted to, to sort of pivot the conversation there. Yeah. Um, I've been, that's kind of been my work. I would say for the last 15, 20 years is um, cultivating a relationship with the more than human world. A lot of that happened through farming. And uh, I started a, a community garden in North Carolina back in 2005 and directed that for four years. So for me, you know, I grew up in Montana, grew up with uh, an experience of God in nature. And so a lot of my awareness of God comes through that, that embodied experience in nature, but that, you know, that work, in North Carolina was really focused on cultivation of nature, cultivation of, of food and reconnecting with the soil through our food. 
And I ended up teaching at Wake Forest University Divinity School for nine years, directing a program there on food and health and ecological well-being. And then moving back here where I grew up in 2020 to raise my boys with my wife. You know, a lot of that was just wanting to be back in the place that formed me and shaped me and shaped my connection to God and giving that to my boys. So, yeah, that's been a huge part of my faith journey. I keep finding myself drawn to indigenous ways of seeing nature and the world and becoming curious about those ways. I've been, to the extent that I've been reading the Bible recently, it's been this First Nations version just in some of my film choices of stuff I've been watching and shows, just kind of trying to finding that there is some deep wisdom there, you know, and that's a very complicated history of how that intersects with Christianity. But there are some, there are some indigenous Christians doing really interesting work, doing a, a kind of a, syn- a kind of a combination, a synchronizing of their Christian faith and their indigenous worldview. And in fact, a lot of it lines up better with like a biblical perspective to use that in its strictest sense, the way that the people who wrote the Bible thought about the world versus the way that American sort of capitalist consumers view the the natural world. And it strikes me that there is something there for those of us coming to terms with the fact that we are complicit in the partial destruction of this planet. And who knows how big a part that destruction will end up being, but it's significant and we've been a part of it and we've benefited from it materially and we don't do much to resist it. And I don't, and we've, you know, speaking for myself, I feel quite hopeless about it uh, often and I have no idea what to do. And there's something in an indigenous approach. And I, I, I'm positive you'll have something to respond to that with. Yeah, I think you're right. There is something to the indigenous approach. And a lot of it has to do with connection, you know, with their stories and practices that are just deeply connected to the piece of land that they live on or or are from. And as you said, the writers of the Bible were coming from an indigenous worldview. They were, you know, a lot of the metaphors came out of the kind of semi-arid highlands of Israel, you know, with a very fragile ecosystem there and, and a need to really care for it. Um, And and brass tacks, a mix of nomadic and agricultural lifestyle, frankly, right? right. Shepherding and and moving flocks from place to place, but also farming and crops and storing grain. And, you know, there, there are both of those kinds of lifestyle, both of which were practiced by Native Americans, for instance, by the time we got here, you get a similar mix and you get metaphors from each of those ways of being in and those different connections to the land. Yeah. And also a a critique of industrial agriculture. You know, Rome was practicing industrial agriculture. They had these big estates called latifundias, which were where they grew wheat and they would store up wheat and you know, stored wheat becomes a form of power that you can exercise over right. people who are hungry. Yep. So there was a there was a, an industrial agriculture system there to be resisted. Then, in terms of indigenous connection, I probably learned the most from my friend Nikki Cooley, who is she's Diné Navajo, and 
she's come and led a few workshops that I've organized and she would say she's traditional Navajo spirituality. And so she opens, you know, when I've asked her to open with a prayer, she'll open with a spoken prayer in Diné. And there's a, you know, she grew up, didn't learn how to speak English until she was eight years old and grew up speaking Navajo. And there's, it's really hard for those of us kind of white Westerners who didn't grow up with any kind of land-based tradition. It's really hard to understand someone from that world. There's so much to be gained from reading indigenous writers, uh, getting to know indigenous folks, listening to their voices, listening to their perspective, because they do have that connection. They do have that sense, that cultural sense of we are the earth, the earth is us. There's no separation. And I think a lot of our ecological problems result from this dual, this dualism between us and the more than human world. So the indigenous, I think what we're coming to see is the, the indigenous view of we are, we're not separate from creation. We're not separate from the natural world. That's very much in sync with the scientific worldview, which is, you know, the microbiota in our guts, you know, or, or the bacteria on our skin, you know, if we were to somehow step outside of the bacteria that reside on the outside of our skin, we would still look more or less like ourselves just from the bacteria that remain, you know? And so the, the living world is constantly moving in and out of us. There is no separation. So if we're harming the living world, we're harming ourselves. That's also an interesting connection back to contemplative practice, because, you know, if you read anything that does sort of comparative analysis of the contemplative strands of, of every world religion, so basically every, every major world religious tradition has, has their own monks uh, of some sort. They have people who engage in meditation and are silent and withdrawn which speaks to whatever it speaks to something about humanity that like we have an impulse toward that. And when we get rooted in sort of the deepest wisdom of our culture, there will be people who will emerge as that's basically their vocation. That's their calling is to do that. And they serve, they serve a role, but they also all tend to kind of agree on a couple things, you know, even though they are coming from different, religious traditions, there is a basically universal agreement when people shut the fuck up that there is a greater connectivity to other people, to the natural world, a sense of oneness. You know, people who take psychedelic drugs also experience these things, but you don't have to take psychedelic drugs to experience them. All the all the great meditators in every in every world tradition sort of agree on these things. They have a similar experience. And and as you were bringing in modern science, and we know that they're right. <laughs> you know, we know that that is also accurate, uh, scientifically accurate, that literally there, matter is neither created nor destroyed anymore. We are made up of the stuff that makes up the earth. It all comes from the earth. We ingest it. Our mothers ingest it into their bodies, which turns into the kind of stuff that makes us grow 
into birthable babies. And then our systems take over and they require inputs of stuff from the earth, which we then poop out and goes back into the earth. And then our bodies go back into the earth. It's undeniable uh, in a physical sense. And then it's also found in a sort of psycho-spiritual sense by anybody who gets deep into contemplative practice of one kind or another. So I just think that's so interesting to connect those things together. And it's not woo-woo. Like I'm not, nothing I just said would be in the metaphysics section of your weird local bookstore. Like this is like, this is not controversial, you know? The, the fact that all those, you know, any comparative analysis worth its salt will point this out of these traditions. So I just want to kind of give you that to run with as well. Yeah, no, what you're talking about is is oneness, you know, both the scientific worldview and the kind of ancient Christian contemplative worldview we've been talking about both help us take down the blinders, prevent us from seeing our oneness with someone not like us, someone with different DNA, you know, someone from a different part of the world or a different culture or the perceived separation between us and God or the perceived separation between us and the natural world, all of those barriers, you know, we need to break those down. And I think science can take us a certain way toward doing that. But I find contemplative practice is about trying to go all the way. It's, it's trying to remove any kind of separation in your life um, that leads to, that could lead you to healing. And part of that's confronting your own trauma too, you know, which keeps you separated from yourself. To relate this to more indigenous ways of seeing the world, these, these more, these, what we would call earlier, you know, earlier in time, communitarian approaches, sort of pre-industrial revolution, there is a real survival-based recognition in those groups that, you know, you're going to have a teenager who wants to sort of show his stuff and be reckless. And the elders know what happens to that teenager <laughs> when you are living more precariously than we are living today as, as Westerners in a, in a wealthy and decadent society where we are buffered from most, if not almost all, sort of survival pressures, right? And yet now... It's sort of like one way of thinking about it is we've gone so far in that direction and we're so atomized and disconnected, either ourselves or maybe our nuclear family. You know, I I often think about how in Seattle, the real dream, I think, of the Seattleite is to own what is now roughly a $1 million home in a cool neighborhood, walkable to amenities and you don't need to know your neighbors if you don't want to. That's kind of, that's the dream. You go hiking, you've got cool coffee shops and, and restaurants near you, and you can choose which of your neighbors you'd like to be friendly with, and preferably uh, just a couple. And you'll, they'll text you before they ever schedule anything, and you have basically maximum autonomy for yourself or your family. And I recognize a lot of that's because we're really fucking busy. And if you start to open yourself up to your neighbors, your plans go out the window. And I, I get all that. But we might reach a point where if everybody gets there and nobody knows 
what the elders of those communities know, which is that individual impulses must be sacrificed for the sake of the collective. By the way, this is something that conservatives get right more often than liberals because they do live in in more community. They do attend their church more often. They know their neighbors. They live more rurally and they rely on each other more. I'm speaking in generalities here. But those of us wealthy, you know, the weird acronym, Western educated industrial, I forget the R&D, what those stand for. But, you know, these, these Western industrialized people, just full on autonomy. And like, isn't that what is like fueling that is essentially what's killing the earth. And so there is a direct line between this stuff, right? Yeah. No, I think you're, I think you're onto something there. That sense, that desire for autonomy, as you described, to not have to know your neighbor unless you want to, that's very much a choice. And, and yeah, the disconnection we have with the natural world, a lot of that is just, we don't have to get to know it. We don't have to know where our food comes from or where our energy comes from or what kind of species we share our ecosystem with. We don't have to know. We can dabble here and there and we want, we want nature to be there for us when we want to go do a cool hike or something, you know, but we don't want to put the time into the relationship. So, yeah, I think that's a a big part of our spiritual dislocation is that disconnect between us and our natural and the natural world. And then it manifests in who our neighbors are as well. So how do you practice your Christian faith in the midst of ecological collapse? What does it look like for you? Hey, collapse is a, I don't know. I, I just, I always want to be careful to not be hyperbolic. I don't know how total the collapse will be. I don't think anybody knows that yet. We don't know the future, but there has already undeniably been some collapse and there will undeniably, it seems, be more collapse to some extent where our kids are going to be acutely aware of the billion plus people whose lives will be made measurably worse by climate change. Let's put it that way. And I don't know how much worse, and I don't know what the number is of people who will actually die or actually become refugees because of it, but it's something. And our kids are going to know better than we know, certainly better than our parents have known. And that's coming. And it's, and of course, already here. So how do you practice your faith in the context of ongoing, to some degree, ecological collapse? Well, I wouldn't use the word collapse because I think, as you said, we don't know how bad it's going to get. And also, I think it it takes away what agency we do have. Right. Okay. Because we do have choices to make. And, you know, as the scientists tell us, every tenth of a degree that we can keep under the threshold, you know, is, is going to help. Right. Um, or you could frame it negatively and say every 10th of a degree hotter it gets, the worse it's going to get. So that's true right on up the scale, you know? Right. So I think as much as we can pool our collective eth- efforts, voting out the assholes as Patagonia had their little, they had a little tag that they were sewing into their shorts before the election, vote out the assholes. I don't wow. know if you saw that. No. So, I mean, any, any politician who's not 
actively working on climate, like they just don't deserve to be in leadership. Yeah. You know, so we need our political leaders to be fully on board with climate action at, at the meta political level. But how do you live as a Christian in that? I think, I think being engaged politically on climate action and there's hundreds of ways to do that, but I think we can't just put our heads in the sand. We can't just say, Oh, we're fucked, you know, give up and just party day to day. Like there are any number of escapist possibilities that await, but I think we have to, and this is where I think the, the Christian contemplative tradition has helped me is we have to be witness to what's unfolding before us. And in being a witness and in looking at it through clear eyes of what's actually going on, you know, we are actually living in a climate crisis. So how do we live in a crisis? And it's a, it's a unfolding, it's a slowly unfolding crisis across decades and centuries, but it's still a crisis. And how do we work toward healing? How do we work toward planetary healing? How do we work toward healing of our neighbors who might be living through forest fires? I mean, here in the West, having just moved back here to Montana after being gone, after being gone for 20 years, you know, fire season lasts a lot longer than it once did. And, you know, we lived through two months of smoke last summer from all the fires in California and Oregon and Washington blowing our way. So how do we, how do we acknowledge that in a clear eyed way? And that's what I think contemplative practice helps us do to, to look at what's actually going on in the world and in ourselves. I think also naming our grief, you know, you talked earlier about getting granular with your emotions. Let's not pretend that we're not feeling anxious about this or that we're not yeah. grieving. You know, we have to name those fears and, and emotions. But I think when we do name those things, it's empowering. You know, it gives us agency and it gives us a desire to act, uh, or hopefully it does. And, you know, the some of the things, whether we're living in a climate crisis or whether we're living in the heyday of the Holocene world when everything was more or less ecologically functional, like we still have to be human, you know, we still have to care for our neighbors in need and try to love each other and, and try to be less judgmental. And so a lot of those things are just day-to-day -day practices too. But I think it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the magnitude of the climate crisis that we, we do have that tendency to give up or to just throw up our hands. But I don't think we have that luxury. I think we have to be, I think we're called into action. We're called into being present in whatever ways we can do that in our lives. I keep finding myself wondering if the America that you and I happen to have been raised in is the statistical anomaly, historically speaking. You know, Ta-Nehisi Coates relates this to the sacrifice of, of black bodies, for instance. You know, how, how much pain and slavery uh, did it take to create all the ice cream socials and white picket fences for the other part mm. of society? And, and I think to some degree, we've seen that cheap labor has been a prerequisite for the relative comfort and decadence of the West. And, you know, in theory, technology might change that and get us to where 
actually people can live pretty comfortably without being on the backs of slaves of one type or another, you know, remains to be seen. I think it's better than it was 30 years ago, as as far as I can tell, uh, or certainly better than 100 years ago. But generally speaking, you know, I was raised to more or less expect a comfortable life from beginning to end, unless I got cancer or something like that, which we always knew that was possible. But 98% of us would live these relatively conflict-free, war-free, you know, buffered by consumer goods. And like, what percentage of humans have ever been able to reasonably expect that? 1%, you know, or so. So we're in the 1%. uh, I don't know what the number is. And most of human history has not been that way. And perhaps what we end up doing to the environment, I often think, will will end that. And maybe not. And maybe technology will sort of rise to the occasion along with some sort of will of younger generations who see the problem. But like that context helps me think about it of like, oh, what have I been expecting? You know, and then like that hurts It's hard to come down from that. It's hard to recognize that. Are you trying to make me feel guilty for that? You know, these kind of natural, it of course relates to the, to the white supremacy conversation and white privilege and all of that. But it is, I love the idea that it's a historical anomaly and maybe that context can help us live like most humans have had to live, which is with less of that expectation of comfort, less of that actual comfort. And you know what? They don't all just fucking die. They don't all just give up and drop dead just because they happen to be living during the Black Plague or World War II or whatever. Feudal Europe. I don't know. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it gives a whole new meaning to the 1%. Yeah, you know, it's a different kind of 1%. 1% well, yeah. Yeah. We in the Western world are part of the 1% in a way of, or 0.1% of, humans through through time yeah you're right i mean there's there's always been massive events on the horizon that people have had to face so yeah it comes back to this is kind of what it is to be human is facing these large scale events that feel overwhelming and beyond our control i think the one difference with the climate crisis is that it's entirely human cost entirely right. human cost it's right you know, just lest there be any doubt out there, this is not a natural cycle we're going through. This is the result of burning fossil fuels since the industrial revolution ramped up by misinformation on the part of the fossil fuel industries ever since the seventies, they've known ever since the seventies that their product was causing global warming, but they hired the tobacco lobbyists, you know, the people who once told us that cigarette smoking was good for us. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad grew up with parents who smoked and they kept the windows rolled up while they smoked in the car. And he remembers complaining in the back seat, like, please roll down the window. And they're like, Oh, hush, honey, you're just being silly. You know, this was in the forties and fifties. Wow. <laughs> and so, you know, with fossil fuels, the fossil fuel industry has basically been saying, Oh, hush, you know, you know, this is not a, a problem. So that's the one difference. And I think that's where in terms of action, there, there is much more agency on our side than stopping the bubonic plague right. in 13th century Europe. It's like now we can draw down carbon. We can stop burning fossil fuels. So I think that is that is incumbent on us 
in terms of where we put our action and energy is however ways we can in our little spheres of influence to start to decarbonize our society. But that's sort of akin to saying like, yeah, if you're in World War II Germany, like you you can hide Jews. If you're in World War II France, you can join the resistance. You know, if you're like you're you're bringing up a distinction of the causes of the calamity, right? Which there is something different. But right. what is what is constant is just like living in an uncertain time, whereas right. living in a certain air quotes time, which maybe the boomers got the sort of best hand, you know, they were born right at the end of World War II. Yeah, they had Vietnam. It only killed like less than 100,000 Americans. Like, you know, it's I think less than 30,000 Americans. And like, you know, they they basically got the best version of this sort of certain yeah. living in certain times in in a sense. And uh they would probably argue that the 60s and 70s didn't feel all that certain, but historically speaking, they were during all that time, just more and more suburbs and everybody gets a car and everybody can, you know, have this dream, white people, of course. And yeah. So at the individual level, it is still similar of like, oh, mm-hmm. that was a lie. You know, that was a a pipe dream. And we're actually probably closer to in that in that particular sense, most of most people. We're obviously still more materially comfortable than almost anyone who's ever lived, you know, there, there are still things that we have that I'm quite grateful for, but psychologically we have to, it's more a normal human thing actually to be living in a time like now than 20 years ago. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And there's something somewhat freeing in that too, that to realize that life is not supposed to be this sheltered bubble, Mm. you know, that our, baby boomer parents lived through. I mean, yeah, in some ways it's a very immature way to go through life to think that everything should just kind of work out magically, but damn, it takes a lot of work to, to get out of that bubble and, and, you know, to leave the warm cozy nest of the Holocene, the 10,000 year period when everything was more or less functional and, you know, to come to learn that, the very bone structure of the earth is coming unhinged through our own actions. It's a, it's a rude awakening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why as we do face the climate crisis, you know, it's so important to have a practice, a a contemplative practice, a mindfulness practice, and for Christians to reclaim that part of our heritage. I think now it's more than ever. We need that in our lives. We need that groundedness, that rootedness. We need mature people who can face these big overwhelming problems that we're facing. And we can't do that if we're constantly reacting on social media and getting pissed off. We have to have some deeper grounding in ourselves and deeper grounding in the knowledge that God is always present with us and acting through us and calling us to love and mercy yeah, I think the world needs that. And I think of this great quote by St. Seraphim of Saroff, who was, a, I think, a 19th century hermit, lived out in the Russian forest somewhere out in the taiga, who knows. But he said, cultivate inner peace and thousands around you will be saved. And I love that. You know, I love that sense of 
you do your inner work, it's going to have ripples. Amen. Fred, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for going a little longer. Josh will put in links in the show notes to your three pieces, Keeping the World in Being, the Merton piece with the film attached, and The Gate of Heaven is Everywhere, as well as links to the books Altered Traits and Into the Silent Land. Uh, You can also become a patron. That's in the show notes for five bucks a month and get access to at least two exclusive episodes per month and the patron-only Facebook group. Thanks for the editing, Josh Gilbert. His email is in the notes. He's available for more work if you have a podcast or audiobook that needs editing. Fred, again, thank you so much, man. What a I love how quick to the bone we got. You know, we got we got in there. Yeah. That was great, Dan. Thanks so much for having me on. I really loved all your questions and learned a lot from being with you. So thanks. 